Welcome to Girls That Invest. You're joined today by your host, Sim and Sonia, two millennial investors who are here to help you learn about all things investing in personal finance. Now, today we are very lucky we have a special guest joining us today. Glenn James from My Millennial Money is here to have a chat with us about his investing portfolio, what he invests in, what he thinks about crypto, what he thinks about real estate, and a little bit about his background as well. Now, if you're from Australasia, you'll know Glenn James. My Millennial Money is a huge money and personal finance podcast in Australia. Glenn James is an award-winning retired financial advisor. He has founded so many podcasts with the My Millennial Money brand. There's My Millennial Career, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Business, My Millennial Health, Gen Z Money. He's also the author of the number one financial book, Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested. And we're so excited to have a chat with Glenn today. This episode is a little bit longer than usual, but there were just so many amazing points that were brought up that we thought you'd really like to hear them. And without further ado, let's get into it. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. How does it feel to be the very first man on the Girls That Invest podcast? Oh, well, I feel like really nervous, number one. But on the other hand, I feel really welcome because I've had a bit of time with both of you and I think what you're doing is great. I know that a lot of my listeners of My Millennial Money also listen to your show, but I just want to really acknowledge that the cool thing about what you're doing and what I'm doing, there are young women who are dialed in with their money and getting dialed in with their money. Like I'm pretty much a guy, right? And 75% of my listeners are female. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. So, it's just podcasting space around this money stuff. It's just amazing that there are uh, so many women who want to get involved. But I've got some theories on that if you want to go there at some point. But thank you for having me. Yeah, I did want to say when you mentioned that a lot of your listeners are actually female That did surprise us. Like, do you think it's just that women like to learn a bit more about money or do you think it's just the My Millennial Money podcast itself? What I think is, you know, us guys, so there's this attitude I think a lot of guys, you know, we think we know it all and don't need the encouragement, but there's other money podcasts in Australia that just talk about shares and investing and making money, which are hugely orientated towards men. So, I think there is just that different correlation that, a lot of us guys think that we know it anyway. So, just get the basics, just tell me how I can get rich type of thing. How can I make money? So, I just love the engagement because, you know, women, you know, ask really good questions. And I guess in terms of history and, you know, as long as humans have been on the planet, this is like the first time that women have been front and center stage with able to actually do things without permission, without, you know, being told they can't do stuff. So, yeah, I just think it's a really great space. But before we get into the nitty gritty, did you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Like, how did Glenn James get into finance to begin with? Because we always like to think that a financial advisor is usually someone a lot older, usually someone who is a bit boring or a bit, you know, not as engaging, whereas you know, you've really changed up what we all imagine financial advisors to be or ex-financial advisors to be. How did you get into the field? I'd always had an interest in personal finance and investing. I mean, I remember when I was like 15 years old, 
my parents dropping me off at a community college and on a Saturday to do like some share investing course with all these retirees. And, you know, that was fun for me. Got to really, you know, lean in and understand about investing and whatnot. And then, you know, through school in like my senior years, I was probably my two favorite studies at school was my two favorite courses was like business studies and IT. So, I was kind of interested in business and computers and that stuff and, you know, reading personal finance books and, you know, investing. I just like the concept of it. But I left school and did a, a telecommunications trade and I knew I didn't want to do that long term. So, I took the risk and quit that and went and studied at a private college, financial planning. And then I got an entry-level role at a financial advising office and just, you know, learned it kind of like an informal apprenticeship in a financial planning firm. So, I was around, you know, all the money stuff of a day and just really kind of complemented my own personal interest. And then, you know, fast forward, I started my own business uh, in, you know, where I live. Uh, we're an hour and a half north of Sydney on the coast and we, yeah, we as in I, I uh, started a, um, a financial planning business and did that for 10 years and then moved into podcasting because I wanted to help more people with just some some good messages of, I guess, hope with their money. Like you don't have to have lots of money to do well. You don't have to have $5,000 start investing. Like it was just kind of this progression and with the underlying kind of thing was when I left my job and started my business, I was 25 years old. I've kind of had the mindset that I retired from the workforce when I was 25 because I've just done life on my own terms since. So for me, it was just this kind of journey of, you know, leaving school, doing something that was productive and not just sitting on my ass and then coupled with following my passion and following what I enjoy and seeing where that leads me. So now, yeah, I'm basically a full-time podcaster. We run a little media business and I employ four people. So it's been really um, a wild time and I'm 37 years old now. So, but I don't have kids, so I haven't had to, you know, press pause or anything like that. I did want to ask, like, when you say you found your passion and you kind of like knew you wanted to go down this track, like, did you have like a light bulb moment where you were like, wow, like, this is it. This is the thing that I want to dedicate my life to or eventually start a business in? Because I think we have a lot of listeners that feel that way, but they just don't know where their passions lie. Yeah, it was kind of funny. Like I had a really good mentor when I was working in the financial planning office and he mentored me for like a good 18 months to the point where it's like I knew I wanted to have my own thing and be in control of my own destiny. And I would say to him, and this is like when we're younger, we just, you know, we all know people that are younger than us. And then when we talk to them, like, if you only knew the future you've got ahead of you, like, if you only could see it from this angle, I, I said to him, I said, oh, I've got no idea what I, what I could do. And he goes, well, why don't you just do what you're doing now as an advisor for yourself? And I was like, oh, yeah, I actually do have a skill and I'm doing that every day. So, it was just kind of having that light bulb moment of getting a mentor to speak life into me and speak, you know, almost – hope and you've got a good future if you want it rather than a mindset of go to work nine to five, have a stable job and rinse and repeat until you check out. 
And, you know, kind of another undertone in the background, I always wanted an online scalable business. When kids apps were really, or when apps were really starting in the, you know, 2007, 8, 9, 10, like in 2011, I think it was, I started a startup company doing kids apps for iPhones because it was at the start of this thing. Everything was going to iPhone and, you know, tablets. So, because I wanted an online business. I've still got an Instagram account called Pet Love Official. I created an app that uh, you put your two pets' names in and it's a love compatibility calculator. Like I, I just wanted to do this online business and those things didn't work. And, you know, I am doing my online business now, which is my podcast and, you know, all the courses and stuff that we do. So I think it's just a filter over your life of just keep moving in a direction if you are not comfortable where you're at with your career. It sounds like you were always a bit of a go-getter, like you always had some like idea in your mind or like something to do. Did you find that you wanting to have something that was online was more to do with the fact that you just don't want to be stuck in a certain place or you just wanted to be able to like move around whenever you wanted? My biggest thing was like, and I look at the uh, trends, I was just like, gosh, Every single person that I know and most people around the world have a shop in their pocket. And I'm like, how do I get a slice of that action? Like everyone in the world who has an Android or or an iPhone or Huawei or however you pronounce it, they're banned in Australia. I don't know if they're banned there. Why are they banned? Everyone has a shop in their pocket. Oh, because the Chinese government own them or have a stake in them. And so they're just like, no. No, no, who are we? Yeah, they banned the phones in the US and in Australia because of um, the Chinese state ownership in the company. So, they to stop spying and stuff. Yeah, pretty wild, eh? So, wherever you are in the world, you know, you've got a shop in your pocket. So, I'm like, this is a trend. How do I get to be in everyone's pocket? <laughs> and, you know, the cool thing is like I run an online business now, but it's a podcast and we help people. And... You know, the podcast is free, but we make money by selling ads and, you know, doing other courses and whatnot. But, yeah, I I think it's just uh, looking for trends and following that trend and doubling down a little bit. I've got the personality. If I see a gap in the market, I'll drive a truck through it and I'd rather go down with the ship if I try something. And... I'm very impulsive, which is a detriment to my personal spending because I'm a spender as well. So, I've had to struggle with that in the background. So, that's the thing. Like, I'll pull the trigger on 10 things over the last 10 years. Seven of them probably sucked and cost me money. It's like the venture capital model, right? But three of them have been very good and very profitable. No, I think that's super interesting. And, you know, thanks for taking us through that background on how you got to where you are what I like most about it is that you've kept it as like a direction rather than a specific role I think sometimes people get caught up like on their career path by pining for like a particular role or particular thing and if that doesn't work out then they kind of lose momentum so I think that's really good advice I guess moving on to the investing juicy portfolio questions do you remember when you started investing Yes. What your first investment was? Yes. And Sim may have seen this in the book that I sent her, but my first investment, I detailed it in the book and it was a bit of a disaster. 
and there's a bit of a joke in the book where there's a coroner's report and there's an autopsy <laughs> on my first investment. And because who's explaining? You know, yeah. So my first investment, and this is the cool thing about this day and age, like you can now invest from $5 basically, which when I was 18 and becoming an adult, becoming a man, I couldn't invest without big parcels of money. So I had to save up like $2,000 to make it worth it. And I didn't have the knowledge of, you know, diversification. You know, ETFs weren't a thing. Managed funds were. That's cool. Or mutual funds, if you call them that. But like the investment I got, it was more so a speculative play and a gamble than an investment because, you know, we invest for the long term. We invest for the for the Sim and Sonia of tomorrow, today. We don't invest, you know, for a quick win. Like, you can do that at the horse races if you want. You can do that by buying some crypto coin that no one's heard of if you want. But investing is completely different to what I did when I started. I bought one single stock and it was some type of ag tech company that had some vaccine for pigs and... You know, they're waiting on government approval and if they got the government approval, the price will go through the roof and I'd be a billionaire and it's all good, but it never happened and I lost like 40, 50% of my money. So, that was a good lesson that was early on. But the good thing now is people can take a bit of a punt, quote unquote, like I did and only lose $50, not 1000 and learn those lessons sooner. The next question was going to be like what hurdles you faced when you first started investing. Would you say the, I guess, accessibility into the share market was probably the biggest one because you had to save up so much? Yeah, I think the the hurdles when I started investing was number one, lack of access, knowledge and what I do. Like, Sure, there's Comsec, which is a broker, which Commonwealth Bank of Australia own. There's E-Trade, which ANZ own. A lot of the share investing books in Australia, I don't think there was that many at the time. I remember reading a lot of property books. but So, there was this kind of information void, like I've got $2,000 saved, but what do I do with it? I, I don't remember you know, someone saying or hearing about oh, did you know there's a fund that tracks an index? Uh, Well, it actually tracks five indexes all around the world and you can do one transaction and have exposure to 2,000 companies. Like, there just wasn't that information. So, there was this kind of weird thing that there was lack of information and resource and know-how. There was high barrier to entry, so I had to save a chunk of money. And then where do I go? Like, I know even, you know, you guys had Sharesies partner with you for some podcast episodes. Like, Technology has made things accessible and easy, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think nowadays if you want to learn about investing or the stock market, it's a quick Google search and there's probably about 50 different YouTube channels, podcasts, different resources from blog posts to get you started. So definitely Mm. agree with it's so easy nowadays. What would you say your biggest investing lesson has been so far? Gosh, Biggest investing lesson? That's a really good question. Like, sure, my biggest investment lesson was, yeah, my first investment where I did all the, you know, I had the perfect storm. I had single stock risk. I had uh, potentially 
key person risk at the small company that was listed, like the CEO or some key one person only. I had legislative risk, can't even say it. So if the government did or didn't approve that, I had industry risk, so like ag ag tech. I had location risk. Oh, it was the perfect storm. And the coroner, who was kind enough to do the report, said if I just did the opposite of everything I did, I would have been all right. Love that. Uh, yeah, but um, showstopper kind of, not showstopper, what is it? Spoiler alert. I, I wrote the coroner's report, but I morphed into a third person to do that. But um, yeah, so that was kind of the, the lesson. But what I found as well with my impulse, getting greedy, there's, you know, two things follow greed. And one of them is stupidity and the other one's being broke. And, you know, I'm not above any of this stuff. Like, you know, I've dabbled with a bit of crypto and we can talk about that. I've dabbled with IPOs and all that. And often the ones that you lose money on, it's, oh, no, I was just being an idiot and I was being greedy. But, again, that's not investing. That's being speculative. That's being trying to get an edge and trying to be a trader and, you know, if it's boring, you're probably on the right track. That's really good advice, actually. How did you recognize that you were being greedy? Like, what would your tips be for people to be a little bit more self-aware in that aspect, if you will? There was urgency. Like, right. I've got to get this trade placed. Like, it's there was hype around it. There was stories of big gains in a short amount of time. So, it's just one of those things. If you think that that single investment is going to solve all your problems, mm-hmm. that's the biggest red flag right there because – and we can go there if you want. Like, I honestly don't think for most of us we will, quote, unquote, make all our money in the share market. No, no, no. We have to produce a valuable thing to the world to get money in return. So, whether it's your job, you exchange your time for money or you create a product and sell that, or you create a system and solve something for somebody, and society will reward you with money. Then what we do, we spend less than what we earn and Mm -hmm. invest the rest for the future. Now, the investing the rest for the future is, well, I want future Glenn, I want future Sonia, I want future Sim to have the best shot, so I'm going to put it in equities, which is basically businesses. So my whole thing is I don't invest in shares or my ETFs to – get rich. No, no, I'm just parking my money for long-term growth. Mm. Sure, if you've got a million dollars in an equity portfolio and it pumps out a hundred grand a year, different story. But for most Mm. of us in the main, the best return we're going to get on our money is transferring, and I talked about this in the book, transferring our human capital into financial capital. Would you say that with your investing portfolio, that majority of it is in the stock market or is it elsewhere? Yes. I, I'm i not really one to have a, a spreadsheet and track everything down to the nearest cent because that's just not my personality. Probably a big part of my quote-unquote investment portfolio is property. Then uh, a second kind of property, then across equities – I've got a fair chunk in our superannuation or, you know, KiwiSaver equivalent. I don't know the laws there that much, but, you know, in Australia, you can put more money in each year than your employer puts in and you can choose where it's invested and whatnot. And then I've got 
a portfolio that's I've got a family trust, a discretionary trust here in Australia, and that has a portfolio that has a heap of shares. But all that aside, probably the other huge investment in my life is my business. And, you know, the business has a value as well. So, you know, there's a common theme here about diversification, right? Like I haven't just gone full ham down into property. I haven't just gone, oh, I'm just buying IVV or whatever, uh, an index fund in the state only, or I'm just going to build my business and not diversify. You know, Mm -hmm. being a financial advisor, I don't know what it's like in uh, New Zealand or if any of your listeners are in that world, like- there's so much dogma that you're a property person or you're a shares person where mm-hmm. I'm like, well, no, I'm just a person who likes diversifying my wealth for the future. Like why not both? Why not both and more, you know? Yeah, little taco girl. Do you have that over there? Yeah. <laughs> well, we don't <laughs> have it here. It's a end. meme. Or, yeah. Oh, I'm surprised you know what a meme <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, I like the internet how that- you're talking about New Zealand like we're some dystopian like country. I know. <laughs> I must apologize. I am coming from the West Island. I do know that. When you say like with your share share portfolio, did you I think in the book you kind of mentioned that like you do kind of like funds a little bit more because they provide diversification. Is that something that you have always preferred or are you more of like a Warren Buffett like I like my index funds and I'm boring and I just do it like that? Or are you more like Let's see what different stocks are there. I want to jump in and out. Like, what would you say is your strategy at this stage? So, for me, with my investments, both inside superannuation or my retirement savings and outside super or or my retirement savings, I don't have more than 10% of my total allocation to equities in single stocks. So, I've got some single stocks just for personal interest, like, oh, I really like that company what they're doing, I'd like to own them. So, within that, I guess you could say the other 90%, it's more of a core satellite approach. And what that means is I might have a core fund, which is a diversified index fund that basically just tracks international equities, Australian equities, some emerging markets, you know, whatever that is, some bonds in there, just a diversified, might be like a Vanguard portfolio, pretty boring, bread and butter, does what's on the box. You know, for the last 20 years, it's pumped out 8% a year, shut up, good night, thank you, all that stuff, right? Just boring, shoveling money into it as the core portfolio. Now, around the core, I might then have some satellite funds and it could be a thematic ETF. So, I purchased a hydrogen ETF the other day, just out of personal interest. I then purchased a real estate investment trust. So, the lion's share of my wealth that's in equities, both retirement savings and the outside, it's basically a core satellite model, but no more than 10% in individual equities. Oh, so would you say like 90% is like funds and then 10% is is your individual stocks? That's kind of like what we mean Sonia do. Mm. Mm. Well, because the data, and for those listening, if you just Google, and I'll Google it right now, trading is hazardous to your wealth. So, there's a a study from Berkeley University in America, Mm. and it's called Trading is Hazardous to Your Wealth, the Common Stock Selection Myth or something like that. 
They've basically just done studies. The more you trade individual stocks, the worse you'll do. Crypto has been a hot topic recently. A lot of, you know, it had like its big peak and then it sort of went a bit funny. And in the last couple of months, it's it's come up again. Do you have anything in crypto or is it something you like keep your eye on? I have a holding in Bitcoin and Ethereum. I've also got a holding in Solana. They're kind of the three main ones that I hold. And again, no more than 10% of my net worth. So all my property and all the equities. But within that, I don't have more than 2% of my net worth in meme coins and all that rubbish. Because at the moment, a cat or a monkey could walk across a keyboard, (laughs) hit a couple of trades and make 20% in a week. So what we're hearing is you're not in Shiba, you know. Well, I actually am in Shiba. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, this is funny, go. right? <laughs> this is funny. So I put some money in Shib, like in August, right, before it went to the moon. And the only reason why, I'm like, oh, Dogecoin went nuts for no reason. I'm going to put a little bit in Shib because it's a funny dog. And then I got scared and took a heap of money out and left some profit in there. And then the profit went to the moon. But the thing is, I'm not talking thousands of dollars with this stuff because it's just part of it for me was just to really get involved in the crypto scene to know what people were doing and how it's all working, right? So, that's like really close in the weeds. But stepping back, I'm just not suggesting that people put, you know, probably more than 2% in crypto. If you're of the view that Bitcoin, Ethereum, they're there forever, sure, keep it at 10%. You've got to have some logic here. I think particularly in Australia, so Commonwealth Bank, Australia's largest bank, have just enabled or they're about to enable crypto trading on their app. Like- Big institutional funds, like they're going to be buying crypto and it's probably going to be Bitcoin or Ethereum. So, it is the future, but the question is, in the future, what will the actual coin be and what will the thing be? So, when the internet started, there was an internet search site called AltaVista. It was like one of the first search engines. There was Yahoo. I mean, AltaVista is not around anymore. Yahoo's not really a search website anymore. It's Google. So, it wasn't the first one that appeared that was the biggest and greatest. So, I think crypto in some way is here to stay, particularly the blockchain technology. So, I'm a big believer that it will be in our lives, but I'm not putting 50% of every cent I own into some meme coin. Bitcoin, I think it will end up being more of a boring old gold standard, otherwise known as boomer coin. Like it's actually pretty boring on the crypto scene and it hasn't got that much use in terms of using the Bitcoin blockchain network like Ethereum or Solana does. But um, I just don't ever want to be... I don't know, old and not willing to adapt to change. So, I think loud and clear, crypto is here. 
But we just have to temper that to say it's very early days. Don't put all your bloody money in it. If you do want to get your toes wet, just keep it 2% of your net worth as a maximum 10%, but not in some coin that no one's heard of. So I guess I'm saying we all need to know that the future is now. <laughs> I mean, but this is it. Like, if someone says they know what's going to happen, I don't care what, what sphere of life they're in, you know, run. No one knows what's going to happen. You know, a bus could come flying through my front window tomorrow. Like, I don't, no one knows what's going to happen. And that's why we've just got to, if you are dabbling in crypto, look for those signs that I talked about earlier. Are you opening it every day looking at the price? Are you getting excited? Are you scared that you're going to miss the next big coin? Are you wanting this one coin to solve all your problems and get $10 billion overnight? You know, a couple of red flags popping up there. So for me, my whole strategy was I want to hold some crypto, namely Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana for a long-term hold. Like I'm not in there trading Bitcoin or crypto. And the problem I've got is I have my trap and say that in a very measured way, like chill out everyone, 2%, don't buy some coin with a dog on it, just don't do it. In three weeks time, someone will say to barbecue, oh, I heard Glenn James says everyone buy crypto. <laughs> it's like, well, no. <laughs> so, so that's why it's just, it's a wild time until you can settle a government debt with it. Is it actually worth anything? I know there's an exchange online when you've got all your coins in there, it will tell you what the total is in Bitcoin. So you can kind of see that maybe the crypto industry is using Bitcoin as the bit of the gold standard. Mm. And I think we're a long way off from using it as a tradable or a currency. So, you know, if you go and spend 0.1 of an Ethereum on dinner, well, if the price of Ethereum goes up 20% the next day, well, you got a good price for your dinner. But if it falls 20% the next day, you paid too much for dinner. So we're a long way off these coins being actually stable like um, traditional currency is. Those are some pretty solid thoughts about crypto. I know you said that you've got some theories about it, but pretty much solidified everything. I did have a question because your portfolio is so diversified. Are NFTs a part of your portfolio? Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, no. Look, actually in the book at the time, it's at the very end of the book. I was actually, to be honest, don't tell the publisher. I was getting a bit lazy. I'm like, oh, I want to write a bit on NFTs just for completeness. And I think I wrote, oh, I don't even know where to buy NFTs. But look, I've looked online and, you know, since then, to me, someone's, you know, Minecraft style drawing of a dog, like I'm not paying $30 for that. Like it just means nothing. But who knows? Like I did try and create the original My Millennial Money artwork the other day as an NFT, but they wouldn't let me for some reason. Again, we're in such early days and we can't be throwing all our money at stuff that just doesn't have any type of record. So the, th the thing is, you know, with crypto, with individual stock selection, with – okay, let's use um, Tesla – is an example with investing in shares. So, 
Tesla went to the moon, right? If someone put $10,000 in Tesla five years ago or whatever it was, they're loaded now, right? We all know that. But there are thousands and thousands of different companies that tanked and people lost their money on that no one's heard of. So that's why we can't go and put all our money in the one thing, hoping it to solve all our problems because there's a higher chance of you getting flushed than being the next insert rich, wealthy person here. I think you put that really well, and especially like the idea of if it's an investment that you're trying to solve like all your problems with, you're probably not doing the right thing because when you think about it, like investing as much as we say, like don't use your emotions, you know, think very logically. As soon as you have that emotional aspect, personally, I just feel like the logic just goes out the door as soon as the emotions come in. Yeah, and I I take that back to, you know, this human nature thing, right? There's, uh, I think it's in the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. They're talking about this really, the smartest guy in America. He went on one of those who wants to be patronized by a millionaire type shows where, you know, you could win a million dollars and all that. And he was really smart and answering all the questions. And he got like the three questions to go. And he's like, oh, no, I'll just take the 500 grand now. And the guy's like, oh, but you're so close and you could win. He's like, well, I walked in with nothing. It's still a lot of money. Uh, so, I'm just going to walk away now. Like just no emotion there. And he was actually smart enough to know that there still was a chance that he wouldn't be able to answer the question. And the problem, and it is a personality play, for me personally, the reason that I really am strict with my percentages in my life, like less than 10% individual stocks, like 10% or less of my net worth in crypto or Bitcoin, right, is because if it does well, Glenn James thinks he's the next Warren Buffett. But I'm not. I've just got lucky. And as soon as I think I'm a sophisticated investor, I'll do my ass and I'll get greedy and stupid and broke follow greedy. So, I've had to learn that the hard way. And I just hope the people listening now, if they do lose money, it's only going to be small amounts because we've got access to these new platforms, right? So, yeah, I guess that concludes my TED talk on that part of the conversation. I think it's so, there's some really valuable nuggets in there. And I, like you said, there's so much that is available now for us to listen to, like this episode, for example, where we can hear about other people's experiences and go, oh, like that's what happened then. If I can like take a little bit away from it, I might be in a better position going forward. I did want to also get into a little bit about property because you did mention that you've got quite a bit of your investing strategy in property invest. You do dive into it in the book, which I thought it was quite interesting. But a lot of our listeners have either bought their first home or they want to buy a home, but we never really hear about what do you do after that? Like, cool, you've bought your first place. You're probably in a time like 2021 where the market is getting a bit hot. You're probably building up a bit equity. What do people do going forward? So, if someone has bought their first home, uh, I would say congratulations. If you've had a long campaign of saving for that home, I would say, well done, you made it. 
I would also say overarching, it's actually important to have a strategy, however small. Like that's a saying that I say, and it's probably in the book somewhere, you know, highlighted, like have a strategy, however small. Now, I honestly, just from a forget money, forget making money, forget investing, like from a human point of view, why don't you just go, I've just achieved this big goal. I'm going to now, next six months, I'm just going to enjoy life. Like, we don't always have to be striving for stuff. We don't always have to try and get an edge and try and get the next big thing. Like, can we not spend money on inviting people over for dinner and having a big surprise when you crack out an expensive bottle of champagne to celebrate with your friends and family? Like, I'm just really big on almost this holistic life of living that it's not all about the money. Like my own financial plan, it's a three-step financial plan. Live on less than I earn, be a generous giver, and invest the rest. Like if you need a financial plan, use that one. Like just have some type of plan. And like Son, you know, when you touched at the start uh, about, you know, just having that direction, you could have a direction that I've just bought my first home. That's awesome. Just going to camp for 10 minutes. I'm going to enjoy it because I might want to buy a new lounge or I might want to put a a back deck on and I just want to entertain people for a few months. Yeah, I do want to buy another house, but I'm going to set a line in the sand that I don't want to be left here doing nothing or not moving for 10 years. So, I'm going to put a note in my phone in six months time, I need to really start to develop something to move towards more longer term. And I don't know if that's answered your question or helped by any way, but I just want to say, like, you don't always have to have the foot on the gas. Like, enjoy life. Enjoy your friends. I just know Sonia is, like, nodding her head vigorously right now. Yeah. I pretty much have the exact same opinion, and that's what we touched on when we did our hustle culture episode. I think when we're always so hyper-fixated on, like, goals and making more money and, like, productivity, you miss you miss out on life and some serious bonding with the people that you love. So I just, I love the fact that you said that. It's funny, Sonia, like just the time that we've talked together, like we're a little bit similar, you know, we're the type of people that will crack up laughing at a funeral, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so because like I said to Sim the other day, she's <laughs> she's like, oh, because I wanted to just have a chat with her and she's like, oh, are you sure you're busy? I'm like, I'm actually not heaps busy, hey. Like it might look like it, but I've really set up my life so I can just kind of float around. Anyway, I overanalyze small talk, right? And I would rather go to the dentist than the hairdresser because at least at the dentist, I don't have to lay there and talk back small talk. <laughs> and so- <laughs> So, I'll go into a cafe or see someone I haven't seen for a while. They're like, you know, how you been? You been busy? And I'm like, no. Nah. <laughs> just chilling. Like, the other day I was bored out of my brain. And that's okay because it's a season. You know, I've just come out of writing this book and I actually wrote this book in Queenstown uh, and it's called Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested. I wrote it in Queenstown, went over there during the bubble before they shut everything, punched out the book. We did our national tour. I am just overworking for this year and I've got no problem telling people that I'm not busy when they ask me because mm. I, I feel like I'm lying to their face if I say, oh, yeah, flat out. I like that. I mean, it just makes you think like if we feel like we can't say I'm just relaxing, it kind of goes to show like do we just not want people to know that it's okay to rest or do we like 
put productivity up with like how we view ourselves or how we want others to see us. It's definitely a learning curve. It's taken me a long time. I did want to get into a little bit about your, like you said, with your property investing portfolio. Would you say that the reason why it makes up a larger portion of your portfolio compared to like stocks and shares and such, was that done on purpose or was that just because property just grew so much more over time? It was strategic. I know that, and this is how like basic my, you know, yes, I'm, a qualified financial planner. I'm no longer licensed. You know, I know all the rules and strategy, but it doesn't have to be that complicated. This is how simple I thought, right? And I would encourage anyone to really break things down simply. With a property, my whole thing with my life was, what can the Glen of today do for the Glen of tomorrow? Now, you can use that logic in a short amount of time, like, you know, tonight, I'm not going to eat a tub of Ben and Jerry's ice cream because I only do that once a week and I'll do it on Saturday. So, the Glen of today is doing the Glen of favor tomorrow by not being a pig today. Or the Glen of today is going to spend less, buy growth assets. So, the Glen of tomorrow in 30 years time will have an income stream. So, for me, I just thought, well, what if I purchase some properties And for me, I was thinking, you know, the family home that I grew up with, that's 30-year, 40-year-old home. Properties last a long time. So, I could buy a property, pay it off, and someone might give me $500 a week to live on. And that means I only really need three parcels of $500 a week, and I'd have $1,500 a week to live on. So, I'm going to buy some property. So, that was kind of like a real basic version of, you know, I wanted to buy these. I call them like future income streams, like property, property, property. And, you know, you can get a bit of exposure to leverage and growth, you know, borrow uh, for that property. Um, You know, sure, if you can get a depreciation schedule on the property, there might be some tax advantages along the way. But for me, it was like, I need to build tomorrow's Glen, a portfolio today. And also because of my personality, I get spendy. Like if there's any money laying around, I will spend it. And I've had to change and have my mindset as I'm still a crap saver, but I'm a really good investor. And all my properties are on principal and interest. So I pay down the loan every month as well as get the cost. And then That's kind of, I don't know, I'm just kind of ranting, but I just want everyone just to understand that your investment strategy doesn't have to be complex. If you want to just buy property and not do equities, that's fine. If you want to just do equities and not buy property, that's also fine. If you want to build your business and not do any of that, that's also fine. But there is a caveat there that I want you to take some profit off the table and divest a little bit, but it's it's all good. You can't wreck it if you're living on less than what you earn and investing the rest and being generous along the way. Can't really wreck it if you have some basic laws of diversification along the way. I'm someone who is not in property just yet, so I'm soaking in everything that you're saying. Beautiful. Like, when do you figure that you're ready for property investing? Does that make sense? Yeah. 
there's an old saying. It might even be on a movie, I don't know. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I, I think it goes back to, you know, in financial planning land, it's all about your life and your goals. So, what do you want your life to look like? Well, I want to travel around New Zealand, live in different parts. I'm not really really wedded to one location. So, that might rule out you being an owner-occupier of a property because I'm happy to rent, right? Mm. But we know owning a property for you to live in long-term, what that does is for the future you, it really caps your rental payments for later in life because you won't have to pay rent, right? So, again, we're doing a favor for tomorrow. So, if your strategy is, well, I know I don't want to buy a home to live in because I'm going to be traveling around and I might do some international work or whatnot. The question is, well, I still need to do the Sonia of tomorrow a favor today and I'm still living on less than I earn. So, the question is, well, we need some growth assets. And then it could actually come down to, do you have an interest in being a landlord? Like, does it interest you, you know, going to look at a property, trying to get a good deal? You know, you might renovate a bathroom and then put a tenant in and charge more rent and do all that. That might really interest you. Awesome. Well, we're going to step backwards and say, well, to do that, I'm going to need a deposit to buy that property. So, then we can go, okay, well, I want to do that. I need to save $30,000, $40,000, whatever the price is. I need a deposit and I'll head down that road. If you're like... I can't be bothered having a bloody property. People piss me off. You know, I don't care if the tap breaks. I just want to pump equities. Well, awesome. You can go down that road. Now, if you were me and you wanted to do both, I took the strategic view that it's going to be harder to save a deposit for a property than it is to just put $100 a week into shares. So, let's do the hard big thing first and get that rolling. So, I did that first. Does that help, uh, Sonia, with your thought process? Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'll send you a bill for $400. <laughs> I'll just revert that to some. Nah, that really helps. I think my biggest block at the moment for property is the whole travel aspect of everything and that I don't want to deal like with a house in New Zealand while I'm in the UK or Europe or whatever. But I like the questions that you put out there. I need to do some reflection it seems. Yeah. And I think you've arrived if you get to the point where it's like, well, I know I have to do something for the me of tomorrow. And then what happens is like, if you then arrive at the point where you don't want to buy a house to live in, it actually makes property investing a little bit easier because there can be less emotion. Like, so in the book, I talk about the mistakes of the first time property investor. And one of the mistakes is they'll just buy a house in the same suburb they're living in because that's all they know and because, you know, confirmation bias, mm-hmm. oh, I know this, right. so it's good, right? Like everyone's doctor is the best doctor. Someone's like, oh, does anyone have a doctor? Oh, you got to see my doctor. She's the best. Like, mm-hmm. so everyone's own thing is the best, right? So, we get this thing where it's like this suburb that I'm living in, it's the best. So, I'm going to buy an investment property here. Well, it could be the worst time on the planet to buy a property in that location at that point of time. So, the good thing about being the investor, you can actually step back and say, well, what's the best use of my dollar for potential upside of growth? And particularly when there is a 
vacancy rate that's low or getting lower. So there might I don't know New Zealand data, but you might Google vacancy rates New Zealand, and I talk about it in the book as well. So the concepts are the same kind of that will work in New Zealand. So I think being a first-time investor for a property could be easier than wanting to buy a property, live in it for five years or so, and then move out and keep it long-term. You might just have to do a, a little bit more strategic thinking to make sure that it will work, that strategy. That's a really good idea because like, I'm sure it's in the same way in Australia, it's the same thing in New Zealand. Property is hard to get into and it feels like day by day it's getting harder. Like We are talking about property investing and like what the next step is, but for some people just jumping into their first home is not so easy. So it's really good advice and I think there's a lot that we can take away from that. I have one question and it's I guess it's not really a technical question as perhaps like a theoretical one or an ethical one, but you do hear like people ask, is it ethical to own more than one house? And I think it's like a valid question. I think both sides of the story have their own really valid answers. But do you have any thoughts about like, the ethical side of investing in stocks or also the ethical side of investing in property? What I think is with ethics, and I've had an ethicist on my podcast. His name's Peter Singer. He's an Aussie, but he lives in America. And I actually did an episode with him about he's buying a property or investment properties unethical. And I can give you the number to put in your show notes if someone wanted to listen to that deep dive with an ethicist. But from my own experience, what's ethical to me might not be ethical to you. And particularly around stock investing, in the book I talked about, I did a bit of a mind exercise, a thought exercise. And I said, here's three scenarios, pick which is more ethical to invest in. So the first one was a big social media company with a blue logo that mines all your data and sells it to other people. You can't really delete the account. The next one is a big, dirty coal company that digs up, you know, black coal and, you know, is destroying the planet with burning coal. The third one is a bank that knowingly or unknowingly is involved with money laundering and using proceeds of that money laundering for human trafficking. So, you know, of the three things, for me, I know the big social media company with a logo that's blue isn't at the top of the ethical list, but someone else might think, well, no, I, coal's bad, so that's more unethical. So, we've got to understand that with ethics, we're all coming from a different starting base, which is made up of our own experience and, I guess, our worldviews based on our experience growing up, right? Right to the point of, for me, is owning a an investment property unethical? I don't believe the answer is yes. I believe it's unethical to blatantly screw people over. I look after my tenants. I don't treat people that rent that they're a lesser person or anything like that. But the simple problem is, if there weren't investment properties, where would people rent? And you go down that road and you end up with government housing and a socialist model. And I know, and I've heard people talk about you know, they've lived in like the Ukraine or whatnot and then moved to Australia, New Zealand or, you know, the States. And I know where they would rather live and it's not the Ukraine. So, it's very philosophical 
and I don't pretend to be an expert in this. I do have some views around ethical investing and I do have exposure to you know ethical investments. But again, some of those funds might dig up iron ore where like some of the companies might dig up iron ore and some people might think that's not ethical. But I'm like, well, you got to use, you know, metal to build wind towers and stuff like that. So it's it's a very complex. I like your answer because I don't think it, it wasn't like I think it's ethical full stop. Like everyone just needs to get over it or, you know, I think it's unethical. Like there's no black or whiteness to your answer. And I think sometimes when we have these questions or we ask them for ourselves, we feel like we have to come to a conclusion that it is or it isn't ethical for the entire world. And I don't think, and like Sonia, you might disagree, but I don't think there's actually an answer to is XYZ ethical because you're right, it's such a personal thing. And I think this is probably a good place to wrap it up. But I did want to say like, thank you so much for, you know, spending the time to come here and have a chat with us. We have really covered just thinking about it, we've covered quite a bit. We've looked into your investing portfolio. We've spoken about what got you into finance, um, you know, how you found your way and property investing as well. And there's a lot of really useful bits of information here. And I did want to say, like, if you're at home listening, you probably got to take away a lot of information. I know me and Sonia definitely have. And Glenn, if someone is listening to this and they think, you know what, this guy is onto it, we really want to hear more of him or we want to see his socials, where can Alison's find you? You can go to My Millennial Money, wherever you're listening to podcasts, or you can check out our Instagram. Or if you want to buy the book, you can go on Amazon. I was going to say, you've mentioned the book a few times. If someone is listening at home and, and you haven't read the book, this is definitely something that you should consider. It's called Sort Your Money Out and Get Invested. You can find it at Whitcalls in New Zealand. You can find it at Paper Plus. Um, and like you said, Amazon as well for anyone that is online shopping. Did you have any last little bit of advice, little nuggets for anyone that is listening? They've heard everything you've said and they just want to know step one about investing. Where do they begin? I think they begin by buying your online course, to be honest, because it does two things. It's a low barrier uh, investment into education. And secondly, if they've listened this deep in the podcast, they really respect you and Sonia as people and podcast hosts. And it's actually a way to support the good work that you girls are doing. So I would encourage anyone listening to get behind Sim and Sonia and buy the investment course. If you don't want to do it yourself, buy it for somebody else. That's the first thing that you should do. And- I just, I think it goes back to like, you know, Sim, you've just bought a a new digital SLR camera to do some content, right? What's going to happen is you'll get to a point where you'll find something that you need to do and your current camera won't do that. So, you'll have to upgrade to a more advanced one. That's no different with our investing. Whether you start with a small account like a Sharesies account, you know, it's easy and it might come once you really get to understand that. You might go, oh, I need to do this with my investing. Well, you'll soon have a level of education where you'll know that you can't do it with the current solution that you've got, but your education will take you to the next 
organic phase of that investing. That is very kind. I just want to say for everyone listening at home, I did not have a gun to Glenn's head to say that. Thank you very much. <sighs> oh, phew. <laughs> Thought you did. No, joking. No, but honestly, like from one, I guess, podcast creator to another, you can kind of get away with being more relaxed and chill the later on the episode goes because the people who aren't really fans of your stuff don't hang around for an hour, right? So, I just want to say like if you're listening to Sim and Sonia, please support them because they are changing people's lives and they're doing it from a good place. And you girls are both welcome on my podcast anytime you want. Just send me a message, right? Like it's all good. So, yeah, I just really want to encourage everyone to support the good work that both of you are doing. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you. So, thank you so much again for jumping on. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. I will uh, talk to you soon. And if you're one of my listeners that are listening to this, get back to work. All right. So, before we go, as always, if you want to hear a little bit more from us, definitely check us out on Instagram. We have 70 70,000 followers now. Absolutely crazy. If you want to join our Facebook group to ask some questions, Girls That Invest is a safe space to do so. Please leave us a review if you've enjoyed this episode or if you wanted to share it with your family and friends, please do so on your Instagram story. It means so much to us and it really helps us grow. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence. Alrighty, till next time team, bye.